Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast and another week in the world of SAS with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat and Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now, Sasta Annual 2018 is fast approaching and I'd love to see you there. It's one of those really funny relationships where you, the audience, is my customer, but I actually know very little about you. And so it'd be really special for me to see you there and, and so much so that Jason Lemkin's very kindly allowed for Drinks with Harry, a promo code when you buy your tickets that not only gets you 10% off the ticket price, but also an unlimited supply and invite to a mojito party with me. As I said, I cannot wait to see you there. But to the show today, and what a guest we have in store for you. I'm thrilled to welcome Jotty Bansal. Now, Jotty is the former founder and CEO at App Dynamics, backed by the likes of Lightspeed, Greylock and Kleiner Perkins, just to name a few, before its ultimate acquisition by Cisco for $3.7 billion. Today, Jotty is the founder and CEO at Big Labs, essentially a lab for creating, developing and launching innovative ideas. The first of these ideas being turned into companies, being harnessed the industry's first continuous delivery as a service platform, where Jotty is the founder and CEO. As a result of this tremendous success, Jotty's been a recipient of many leadership awards, including Best Cloud Computing CEO to Work For, Best CEO by San Francisco Business Times, and also consistently ranked as one of the highest rated CEOs on Glassdoor, with an employee approval of 97% in 2015. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Neeraj at Battery, Spencer at Amplitude, and Matt Murphy at Menlo for the question suggestions today, which really did help make this interview as special as possible. But before we dive into the show today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end. Instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Lupulin and Exchange, the centralized hops marketplace for commercial brewers. It's where brewers, along with growers and brokers, sell hops, one of the four key ingredients in beer. With extensive search functionality from contract management to integrated payments, it streamlines and secures everything, so buyers and sellers can get back to the brew house fast. And that's why more than 4,000 breweries use it, and you can learn more at lupulinexchange.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Lupulin Exchange did, then visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this incredible smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. As I said, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. However, enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Jotty Bansal, founder and CEO at Big Labs. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jossie, it's absolutely awesome to have you on the show today. Big hand to the team at Battery for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Jossie. Thanks for having me today here. Not at all, but I'd love to start with a little bit about you and how you made your way, as we said, from helping your father selling agricultural machinery to founding App Dynamics. So what's the story in a quick two to three minutes? Well, you know, I grew up as a kid in a small town and my dad has a business helping agricultural machinery and you could call it like a mom and pop shop. So I would go and help at the shop. And then I went to school to study computer science. I was always very interested in that. And when I finished school, I just wanted to work in startups or be around 
around startups, so I came to Silicon Valley. And that fascination with startups and my exposure to business early on, in 2008, I ended up starting AppDynamics as my own startup. And today we're going to walk through the process of scaling the incredible SaaS org that, that was AppDynamics and the different processes there. But I'd love to start on the first element that you suggest as being kind of crucial, being finding your North Star. So how do you think startups should determine their North Star in the early days? To me, the, the only not star in the early days is the customer. It's really how do you solve the problem for the customers that you have and identifying and learning that very well. One thing I see like, you know, many startups and at AppDynamics initially, we would do that mistake is is obsessing too much about competitors. That what are our competitors doing or what are potential competitors doing? And what we realized was like that was actually misleading us into wrong directions that we would make what we want to build in the product, what we want to prioritize, what we want even like, you know, how we want to message how we want to position it should all just come from as many conversations with customers we can have and once we have customers what is driving them to be successful with our with, with, with our product so my only not start is the customer you mentioned that kind of the centrality of the customer itself i do have to ask to what extent do you think founders should involve customers in both product roadmap and development you have to involve your customer in the product roadmap and development, but in a way where the customers, they're providing you the feedback and the validation. Many times customers would not be good at the ideation of solving a particular problem or like, you know, how to go about solving a problem. So if you, if you go and ask the customer, how would you solve this problem? You may not get the right answer. That's your job as a startup to solve the problem for them. What you want to ask the customer is, this is how we are thinking of solving this problem. What do you think? So you want to validate your thinking around what you want to do everywhere. Same thing with like, you know, you want to have a roadmap and you want to go and talk to customers about this is what we're thinking about our roadmap. What do you think? If you go and ask the customer, tell me what should my roadmap be? That may not be the right thing to do always. Can I ask, you've now invested in companies and mentored founders. Where do you see many founders go maybe wrong in establishing their North Star in the early days? I think many founders go wrong, you know, especially like say if you are in a place like Silicon Valley, there is almost like a Silicon Valley echo chamber of some kind. And many times people will go wrong in kind of like, you know, just talking to folks in Silicon Valley. People are talking to you know, folks in Silicon Valley, you're in VCs and experts and advisors and all, all that. And to me, that's many times is a, is, is a big problem where I see founders going wrong. And I encourage every founder, like, you know, stop spending that much time in Silicon Valley talking to, you know, investors and advisors and all that. Go and talk to your customers. Go out and talk to customers and you know customers are all over the world all over the country and make them your north star but now we've established that key north star we're ready to scale the company through the multiple phases and Mm. and first we have the 0 to 3 million arr phase so with this phase in mind what's the key goal in this stage of the of the scaling process the only goal in this phase is to establish do you have a product market fit because you will start the company with a thesis that there's a problem here and then you have a thesis to build a product to solve the problem but you have to trade through that thesis and evolve and adapt to validate the, the market and to validate that you are building the right kind of product to solve the problem in the market. We spoke to Niraj at Battery before the show, and he said, uh, I'd love to hear Jotty talk about how he thinks about product market fit and then how you look to get champions to describe that value. When I was doing product market fit exercise for AppDynamics, one thing I did realize was as founders, you're so 
passionate about the product you're building. And if you go and talk to customers and start asking for feedback, people want to be nice, so they won't give you bad feedback. So what I did realize over time was like the right way to find product market fit is when the potential customers you're talking to, they can articulate the value prop back to you. The first question I would ask them was, what do you think of what we're doing? And everyone would say, yeah, this sounds good. And that was not useful, much, much <laughs> useful at all. And then, then I would say, oh, maybe I should ask, you know, would you buy this? And then I figured out like, would you buy this also was not a, not a very good question because, you know, people will start getting into this kind of a negotiation mode and whatnot. So the, the question that I realized was like working the best always was, if you have to make the case to your boss to buy this, how would you describe why should you buy this? And I realized like, unless you start hearing the same kind of business cases on, you know, how would someone make a business case to their boss to buy what you're doing? And you don't really have identified the right kind of product market fit. No, absolutely. We had a recent investor on the show. Speaking of not talking to investors, uh, we had a recent investor on the show and, and he said the early product market fit can be very misleading. I'm intrigued. What are your thoughts on this? And, and how do you think about the sustainability of product market fit? So the early product market fit could be misleading, yes, because a lot of times what people try to do is people try to find customers in their network that, you know, these are the people I know and we need to work with people that we know, friends and family network. I talked about the Silicon Valley echo chamber, like, you know, you're working with other startups around you that you know your friends in and things like that. But to have a sustainable product market fit, one of the things that I like to do is not even go to customers in your network. Go and find customers like completely cold. And if you can't find people cold to talk to you about the problem you're doing, that is a challenge. That's a first flag. And once you start finding these people cold to, to talk to you about you know what you're doing and they are excited about it and they see the business case and they are willing to try and they are willing to buy your product, that is much more sustainable than the early customers you found through your network. And once you do find those outside the ether, so to speak, and you prove the sustainability of that product market fit, you know, we get to the 10 to 15 million ARR stage. What are the core objectives to this next stage of business growth? Yeah, once you have found, and I, I call it an initial product market fit, because your product market fit is always constantly evolving as well. But let's say you found an initial sustainable product market fit. Now the next major challenge is about how do you figure out your go-to market model? And you don't want to lock down your go-to market model too soon before you have your product market fit, which is like, you know, are you going to sell through enterprise sales? Are you going to sell on through inside sales? What would be your price point look like? What would be your, your marketing strategy? How do you find the customers and all of that, right? And that's to me, the, that is the key goal. Like, you know, if you get to that, you know, normally like the two, three, $3 million of ARR, you have a decent early product market fit. Then the, the goal is uh, to find what is your go-to market model and you want to iterate. Uh, you, you know, it's like uh, one thing I see people making a mistake there is trying to make a very strong stand on the go-to market strategy at this stage. And I tell them like, you know, you just have to experiment and iterate very similar to how you experimented and iterated to find the product market fit. You have to do the same thing on finding your, you know, I call it like the go-to market strategy fit. So that's a third leg of it, which uh, that you have to go through a similar cycle and iterate and find it. That's kind of the goal to, for me to get to the 10, 15 million dollars a year. Can I ask, if we align that to the, the experience of that dynamics, how did you think about that go-to-market internally? And what was that decision-making process like for you on the go-to-market? AppDynamics, we traded on a lot of different models. At AppDynamics, eventually, we ended up building a very strong field sales, enterprise sales-based model. But that's not what we started with. We were, we started with the inside sales model. We started, we experimented with field sales as well. We experimented with selling everything on phone. We, so it was a lot of experimentation there. And what we did realize was that we are selling into larger enterprises. And the way to sell them was this kind of a model of now everyone everyone talks about it, the lend and expand kind of model, that we have to have a model where we are doing deals and getting logos very fast. 
fast with a strong inside sales team backed with a freemium kind of strategy. And then we have to put a very strong field sale so that we can take those small deals from like, you know, $30,000, $50,000 to like half a million dollars or millions of dollars uh, rapidly. That whole go-to-market model of like, you know, that it has to have a freemium element combined with a inside team that's grabbing quick logos combined with a very strong field sales execution that takes those initial logos to, you know, half a million, million dollar, two million dollar kind of deals. It took time and experimentation to get to the, the right playbook. I'm intrigued. What are the big challenges then that you see startups make those mistakes on within that go-to-market decision-making and where they really pursue maybe the wrong elements of the market? I think it, it's really the, the alignment, right? You know, so the one thing that I see people making mistake and I ask everyone is to try to have at least a thesis on how your business will look like. And you can adapt from there, like how would your business look like at $100 million of ARR? Then you can at least start charting a course around it or, you know, you may want to model it at like, you know, $20 million ARR and $50 million ARR, which to me is like, you know, $100 million ARR based on the your understanding of the market, your product, the competitive landscape. Is it going to be you have uh, 10,000 customers paying you $10,000 a year or is it 1,000 customers paying you $100,000 a year or is it you have 100 customers paying you a million dollars a year? Because you have to understand what the value prop and the ROI of your, your product is, how many customers are there potentially that you can acquire. And unless you understand that, you really can't engineer the go-to-market. So if your go-to-market is going to be about that your product's value proposition is $20,000 a year and you're building a go-to-market strategy that's completely based on six-month sales cycles and enterprise sales for that's not going to work. But if your product's value proposition is $250,000 a year and you're building a sales force that can sell at those deal sizes and kind of run the sales cycles, that's not going to work as well. So that's my you know number one advice I give to people on that you have to understand how many customers you're going to have and how much are they going to pay you and then you start engineering your go-to-market for that. So now we've established that the initial product market fit, we've really engineered the go-to-market and we're happy with that. And we're moving into hyper-growth and ramping from 60 million to 80 million ARR. We're scaling very fast here, by the way. So what should be front and center in the mind of the entrepreneur from 60 to 80? Where's the core mental efforts lying now? I think the core mental effort at this point lies less in experimentation. Uh, so the first two stages to me is like the stage one, the product market fit was heavy experimentation, adaptation on finding the product market fit. The second stage was to find heavy experimentation on finding your go-to-market model. But in this phase, you want to kind of reduce on the experimentation because you don't want to be, you won't be able to grow that fast. So you, once you've established it, you want to still modify it and ad- adapt it and adjust it, but you don't want to change it every six months, every year completely. And it's, it's really Really all about scaling it fast it's that you want it to be the point where it's, it becomes a rinse and repeat that you can like you know you have five teams doing the selling can you build five more teams and grow it to 10 can you make it 20 can you make it 50 can you make it 100 because you want to be able to have a model where you can rinse and repeat and add more and more teams on on your sales side on your customer success side on you know how do you do demand generation how the leads are coming in can you expand that and then uh, from entrepreneur's perspective you start looking at okay where would the bottlenecks be on that you know can you recruit all those people that's the number one bottleneck because you want to grow that fast the second is like you know what where a bottleneck will what is it in the model that's not going to scale is the demand going to slow down because uh, there's a challenge there is would there be pricing pressure that will reduce the pricing to come down and you start thinking of you're executing on, on a model and a plan and you just want to proactively reduce and remove any of the bottlenecks that you can foresee uh, on the execution you said about not scaling that i'm intrigued what didn't scale for you bunch of things right you start i would say the number one thing that uh, when 
when you are going there is to figure out how can you recruit that many people. So that's one thing that, you know, to me, that was a jolt on, like, I have to figure out how to scale that in a reliable, predictable manner. The second was really about like, just like when you're going through that fast, you know, people would, you know, some people don't want to do that. Like you have to be more organized. You have to be, you know, more operationally focused on it. You have to be more structured. And some people who would not want, you know, who are very good in the the experimentation and the adaptation cycles in the, in the, in the earlier stages, I mean, may not enjoy doing that. Right. So you may want to find the right roles for them and bring in the, the right new people in there. So there will be those scaling challenges. There will also be scaling challenges around that we, that we ran into AppDynamics around like what I call like the evolution of a playbook. The people get used to a playbook, right? So when, when we were small, when we were at $10, $20 million of ARR, our sales playbook looked different than when we were at $50 million of uh, ARR. People get used to what worked for them. It's, it's okay to keep adapting and changing as we scale that there would be a different playbook. Like, you know, if you're doing a million dollar deal, the, the playbook would be different than, you know, what you would use at a hundred thousand dollar deal, things like that. With the kind of core element there of recruiting and scaling recruiting, do you agree with the hire fast and fire fast thesis? I do. You have to, to a certain extent, right? there, there's a balance of it. Like, you know, if you, if you are hiring fast and firing fast and you're firing, you say 50% of the people you hired, you'll completely fall apart. To me, it's like my rule of thumb is if you get eight to nine hires out of every 10, right? You're doing well and you don't need to get 10 out of 10, right? Sometimes people go very slow because they're trying to get 10 out of 10 hires, right? And to me, it's like if I get eight out of 10 hires, right, I'll be fine. But you you don't want to get a, get to five out of 10, right? That will slow you down as well. So it's a, it's a balance. And then if we move into the final stage of this scaling process, the pre-IPO or pre-acquisition stage where we're looking at 80 million and above ARR, most recent for you then, what were your key focuses at this stage of the business and app dynamics? At app dynamics, the, the key difference at this stage started to become like a lot of it has became about operational efficiency. So we were in the, the hyper growth mode. It's all about how do we get market share? How do we grow as fast as we could? Still keeping the, the cost and the cash flow reasonably managed. Once you kind of go through that and you have established yourself as the the winner or one of the winners in your in your category, and you are on the path to going, you know, becoming a public company, a lot of focus becomes around operational efficiencies. That how do you get susta- sustainable operational efficiencies in the system? How, how do you manage your growth so that you can show the, the leverages in the business? Can I ask, before we dive into the 60-second SASTA, where do you think you did particularly well in establishing this operational efficiency? When you look at the engine that you created, where do you look back? Obviously, everywhere with pride, but there are the elements where you see you excelled. I think we excel at AppDynamics in the operational efficiency is building additional products to expand ourselves to a platform. So when when I look at like the best way for us to get the operational efficiencies is, you know, so we, we are selling our product one to our customers. Can we build like another three, four, five adjacent products and expand it to a broader platform? Because the operational efficiency of us selling these adjacent products to the customers would be very high because they already are customers. You're already selling them. They already are using our base products. And then similar thing on the engineering side, like the cost of building them on the same platform would be lower. At AppDynamics, I called it that we got to evolve from a product to a platform. So, and we set the goal at around like the $50 million ARR mark that now is the next step will be about evolving from a product to the platform and that will get us operational efficiency. So now, you know, AppDynamics, you know, part of Cisco is doing four $500 million of ARR now. And a lot of it is that investment that we made to do the, the product to platform and the operational efficiencies that, that it brought to us for, for a long term. Where do you think most fail in establishing such operational efficiency? I do think where people fail is, uh, you know, when you go through those hyper growth mode, there is a cultural aspect, like, you know, things are going so well, there is so much funding available, you know, every investor wants to invest in you, you know, things are moving so fast. And then people kind of lose sight on the, the discipline around fiscal, uh, around spend and cost kind of things. Second 
thing people fail is like, you know, people don't, where would you get operational efficiencies a year from now, two years from now, thinking ahead? Because when you are at that size, you have to start thinking two, three years ahead because some of the efficiencies, you know, you have to work on for two years to, to start getting them. I do want to dive into Jossie's 60 seconds faster. So the quick fire round, okay. 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Sure, sounds good. So the most important job a CEO can do is management upgrade. Do you agree? Not necessarily. I think the most important job a CEO can do there is to make sure that they are the right people in the right place all the time. And sometimes that may mean upgrading and you do that, but you want to have the best right people at the, at the right time. A recent guest said payback period is the most important metric. What are your thoughts and what were your guiding metric? At AppDynamics, our guiding metric changed on the different phases. We talked about the different phases. When we were in the product market fit phase, I would not even think about payback period. But when we were in the same with like establishing the early go-to-market model. But when we were starting to scale the business in the in that hyper-growth mode, then we will start looking at, yes, the payback period was one of the very important metrics. When we start getting into the operational efficiency uh, mode, you know, once we start getting into the $70, $80 million ARR, that did become one of the, the most important metrics. The biggest challenge, take yourself back to pre-$10 million in ARR, the biggest challenge faced in getting to $10 million in ARR. I do think that the biggest challenge in my mind for most startups I see is not figuring out sales execution properly. Like people normally, you know, at that stage, they have figured out their product execution, they have figured out their market, they struggle with getting the sales execution right. The favorite SaaS reading material, what's it for you? When rainy day, what do you love to sit down and read, Jossie? Jason Lemkin on Quora. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's made Jason's day. Um, <laughs> that episode is getting heavily promoted now by Jason. Um, but let's finish on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with App Dynamics? I'm sure a couple of things or many things, but what stands out? Well, what stands out to me is that I, I wish I'd known is that you want to make sure, like, you know, the people you're bringing to work closely with, but no, they're not just the most talented, they're also the right people you want to spend many, many, many years with. Like, you know, it's uh, because that just makes the journey easier and simpler. I couldn't agree with you more, but Jossie, it's been such a pleasure to hear the incredible journey scaling app dynamics. I feel we've done incredibly well to do it in 24 minutes, but thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. What a guest. In my word, I have to say that was a personal highlight for me being the incredible SaaS nerd that I am. But I do want to say a huge hand to Jotty for giving up the time today to come on the show. You can see more from him on Twitter at Jotty Bansal SF. And I'm also thrilled to say that we will be releasing our episode with Jotty on operational elements to do with running startups, fundraising, and much, much more on the 20 Minute VC in the coming weeks. I look very forward to that. But before we leave you today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end. Instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And again, thanks to my friends at WePay for highlighting Loopulin Exchange 
Exchange, the centralized hops marketplace for commercial brewers, where brewers, along with growers and brokers, sell hops, one of the four key ingredients in beer. With extensive search functionality, from contract management to integrated payments, it really streamlines and secures everything, so buyers and sellers can get back to the brew house fast. That's why more than 4,000 breweries use it, and you can learn more at loopylinexchange.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Loopylin Exchange did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. As I said, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support. We hope you enjoyed the show today, and we look forward to bringing you next week's episode.